Okay, so welcome everyone to Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Today, I'll be your host. I'm stepping in for Charlie Wilson. And joining us today, we have our invited guest, Dr. Tom Finger. And along with us, we have Isabel Muzio joining Hello. our conversation. Um, so today, uh, our, our, our guest, Tom Finger, he is a pioneer of the taste and chemosensory world. Um, besides looking at the innervation patterns of the taste bud, their transmission pro, uh, pro, profiles and, and neurotransmitter um, uh, representation of, of taste, um, he's also been a really great researcher as far as um, looking at the the connectivity of the taste system in multiple species, including goldfish, which we would love to hear more about. Um, as an early researcher, he was interested in marine biology and eventually made a switch to more chemosensory specificity. Um, so I'm hoping we can touch a few uh, minutes on, on the goldfish research that you've done in the past as well as your more current uh, work um, looking at the connectivity of the taste system and the connectomics um, of, the, of the taste bud. So uh, just to get us started on, on the goldfish topic, because we haven't had a chance to talk too much about that, can, can you give us a little bit of background about goldfish chemosensation um, and how they can detect uh, their food versus the stones that are surrounding their food? Sure, um, so goldfish are I mean, a common household pet, and everyone's had a goldfish one time or another in, in their life, probably. And you would look at a goldfish, and they don't look like, like they're doing anything really very exciting in their life. What they do is they go down, they take a mouthful of gravel, and they spit out a mouthful of gravel. And what's, why? And, and the answer, to, to get to the end point, is that what they're doing is they're taking a mouthful of gravel that has algae in it and little bits of food particles and whatever, and what they're spitting out is pretty much just the gravel. They're retaining all the organic matter and using that as a food source. And the way they do this is they have a, a sophisticated food sorting apparatus on the roof of their mouth called a palatal organ. So it's almost as if you took your tongue and sewed it to the roof of your mouth and then took food and put it in your mouth, food and gravel. Say you, you picked up a handful of gravel from your driveway and put M&Ms in it and popped it in your <laughs> mouth. How do you sort out the M&Ms from gravel? And we could do that. And the way we would do it is we'd push something to the front of our mouth and run our tongue across it and say, oh, is this an M&M or is it gravel? And if it's an M&M, you'd kind of push it in the back of your mouth. And if it's a gravel, you'd spit it out. So we would do a, a serial sorting technique where you're, sort, you're sorting one or two items at a time and making the decision that way. A goldfish does it by taking the food and the gravel and putting it on the roof of their mouth where they have like a giant tongue there sewn on the roof of their mouth and they can decide, oh, in the back left there's a piece of food and in the front right's a piece of food and I'll hold on to those two places and then spit out the gravel that's left. And so we looked at the neural mechanism that underlies this food sorting behavior that allows you to retain food particles selectively in one part of your mouth and not in another part of your mouth. And um, the taste information from this food sorting organ comes into the hindbrain. It's very similar to the nucleus of the solitary tract in our brain. And instead of being just a column of um, not very well differentiated cells like it is in mammalian brainstem, this is a highly laminated structure. It looks like visual cortex or an optic tectum. 
and has a columnar radial organization, so there's point-by-point -point representation of the mouth into the uh, vagal lobe, as it's called. And then there's a, a reflex connection from the sensory layers of this lobe down onto the underlying motor layer that itself is organized in a somatotopic fashion, and that's the underlying reflex that drives this ability to sort things point by point within the oral cavity. And in terms of bats, do they have the same variety that you see in mammalian species or not? In this, the, in the taste buds in the taste fish? Taste buds. Well, they have taste buds. They look very similar to mammalian taste buds, but their chemical responsiveness is somewhat different. Uh -huh. not, so uh, mammalian species tend to be uh, have more responsiveness to sweet and fish tend to be more responsive to amino acids. Mm -hmm. They tend to avoid the same thing, so we did a behavioral study with goldfish, either feeding them uh, pellets laced with quinine or pellets laced with amino acid mixtures, and they easily discriminate between those, but what they can do is they'll, if you make it complicated for them by taking a gelatin pellet and mixing food particles into a gelatin pellet that has quinine, normally they'll spit out the quinine, but they they're getting a mixed message there. They actually grind up this gelatinous mix and they'll retain the food particles and spit out the quinine parts. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so they have, like, they, they make, a, make kind of a map of yeah. their internal oral yes. cavity right. and then pinpoint the pieces, the particles of food that they want to keep right. and then just all at once dispense they'll, of the rest? They'll, yeah, they'll spit out everything else. So what happens is the roof of the mouth contracts down and pushes against the floor of the mouth to ensnare a particle, and the rest is kept open. So, so they have extremely, they like, I mean, almost like fingers, like, I mean, that, to have that kind of <laughs> well, it's, specificity it's within the pressure, mouth. Right? It's fingers if you're like a millipede, so uh -huh. like very microscopic protuberances off of the roof of the mouth. That's, that is really amazing that they can just kind of kind of trap the ones they want and then dispense the rest out. Right. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. That's very interesting. And maybe you can tell everybody a little bit about um, some of the findings that um, led you to discover the, that ATP was the neurotransmitter in the, um, in the type 2 receptors. And I think that that was really fascinating. Yeah, so um, starting back in, well, in the 1980s, 1990s, we were looking for what's the neurotransmitter that couples the taste, the cells of the taste bud, which are just epithelial cells, they're not neurons, to the first real neural elements in the pathway, the sensory nerves that innervate the taste buds. And at, in that time frame, people were discovering glutamate as a transmitter, like for rods and cones and for hair cells in the ear, etc. And the, the most popular candidates of the day were acetylcholine and glutamate as excitatory neurotransmitters in various peripheral systems. And so we looked for those first. And the problem, of course, of looking for glutamate in a system is that glutamate's in every system because glutamate's an essential amino acid and you're going to find glutamate everywhere. So using localization techniques didn't work, but we couldn't, even using pharmacological tools, which at the time were pretty good for distinguishing glutamatergic uh, receptors, I mean, there was no evidence that glutamate actually served a functional role in the taste system. So we were casting about for transmitters, and we tried GABA, and we thought about all these many things. And at the time, I was working with Tom Dunwoody 
at the University of Colorado Medical School, and he was interested in the hippocampus. And he was looking at adre um, adenosine and functions of adenosine in the hippocampus um, and other purinergic transmission systems. And I co-opted him into actually making a slice preparation of the goldfish hindbrain that we just talked about because it's a nice layered structure. It looks a little bit like a hippocampus. And we, could, and we, we did some neurophysiology on the goldfish brain slices. And I kept talking to Tom about neurotransmitters. And in the, in the brainstem, the, the, the gustatory nerves do use glutamate to transmit to the second-order neurons in the brainstem, the taste information. And he was always telling me about his purinergic transmission system, so that got me interested in the possibility of, oh, maybe there's some purinergic transmission out in the taste buds. But we really didn't have the tools of the day to, to look at that. And then right around um, 2000, Jeff Bernstock's lab in, uh, in England published uh, a couple of papers saying that, oh, they had just described P2X receptors, the ionotropic ATP receptors found throughout the body, the P2X family, and they were now developing antibodies to localize them, and they had a whole series of papers on where you can find these P2X receptors. And basically, you find them almost every sensory nerve has a P2X receptor. The carotid body uses P2X receptors. And they had this really nice paper, um, Bo Ford and Bernstock, showing localization of P2X receptors in the nerves innervating taste buds. And curiously, there were actually two receptors in mice that were in the same taste nerves, P2X2 and P2X3. They're just, so these P2X receptors are, are um, trimers. They can be heterotrimers or homotrimers, so they can assemble in uh, different combinations. And P2X2 and P2X3 tend to co-assemble, so that if you just express them both in a cell, you will see all different kinds of receptors. You'll have P2X2 homomers, P2X3 homomers, but most of them will be these heteromeric receptors that are perfectly functional. So if we wanted to use a knockout approach to look at functionality, you couldn't use a single knockout of either one because if you knock out all the P2X3, well, the P2X2 receptors will still work. And conversely, if you knock out P2X2, the P2X3 receptors will still work. So we needed a double knockout mouse, which was beyond our capabilities of making in those days. But um, at a neuroscience meeting at around, I don't remember the year 2003, something like that, um, we encountered a poster out of the Roche Biosciences Institute who, where they were interested in studying the role of P2X receptors in bladder function and cough. And we saw, oh, they had a double knockout mouse. They had bred them up. So we went running up to the poster presenter, her name is Deborah Cocaine, and asked her, oh, do these mice taste anything? And she said, how would I know if mice taste? They eat. <laughs> and I, we said, oh, well, it's very simple to test the mice. You just do a two-bottle test. That is, you put in two water bottles in their cage, and one has water, and the other has water plus something that tastes, either sugar or something bitter. And then you test them. It's like, not hard. <laughs> you just measure how much water they drink from each bottle. She said, oh, no, that sounds like a lot of work. Why don't I just send you the mice? Which was an incredibly generous gesture on her part. And so we tested them, and sure enough, the mice, these double knockout mice, did not respond to any tastant, whether it be a good tasting tastant or a bad tasting tastant, they didn't respond, they didn't care. It was as if we'd put two bottles of water in. So we were all excited, we 
called up Deborah and said, oh, Deborah, this is great, great. And she said, oh, that's really important. You should publish it. And we said, yes, do you want to be a co-author? And she said, no, no, I just sent you the mics. I didn't do anything important, which was, to me, incredible, sort of given the, the uh, kind of culture of the, of the transgenic knockout community of the day. So we went on, of course, to, to follow up on the behavior. We did neurophysiology, nerve recordings from the double knockout mice. They don't show any nerve responses to any quality of taste in salt, sweet, sour, bitter, or umami, nothing. But the nerves were still very responsive to touch, temperature, and other uh, non-taste features, which is really indicative that something is going on, uh, suggestive of the transmission from the taste cells to the nerves has been disrupted by this knockout. And that so, knockout yeah. paper is one of my favorite oh. <laughs> taste papers. Did you test salty? Yes, we semester? tested everything, uh -huh. salty, sweet, and all, everything. And interestingly, even though the nerve doesn't respond to any of these taste qualities, the mice still avoid sour. So they're avoiding sour not using a taste mechanism. And you go, well, how is that possible? And you say, well, sour really is just low pH. It's just acids. That's what sour is. And there are taste receptor cells called type 3 cells that are specifically responsive to sour quality. So taste will respond to sour, and when you record from a pure taste nerve, you don't see a response to sour in these double knockout mice. But the mice behaviorally are avoiding the sour, so they're using a different sensory mechanism to respond to sour. And it mm -hmm. turns out that's probably the trigeminal sense. So just the general innervation of the mouth, because the sour, the low pH, will also activate the trip channels. The trip B1 and trip A1 both are responsive to low pH. And, and so the mice can just use a different sensory mechanism to avoid the taste. That's very interesting. And is it known if there are differences between the P2X2 receptor and the 3? Yeah, so they, they have some slightly different biophysical properties. Oh, I get this. I know, I'm, so don't like quote me. <laughs> so let's just say they have different biophysical properties. So if so if it's a, because it's a trimer, you can have either 3 P2X3 subunits or 2 P2X3 subunits and 1 P2X2 unit uh -huh. or 2 P2X2 units and 1 P2X3 unit and they each have a, a unique biophysical signature. Mostly anything with more P2X3 has a faster on-off response and the P2X2 ones are, are slightly more slowly adapting. Are there some uh, like pharmacological tools to, to s separate out? Great, great question, yes. So um, the Merck company has published papers showing that chronic cough is a, a, a problematic condition for many older people, mm -hmm. about two-thirds uh, women, one-third men, have chronic cough. And chronic cough is defined as an ongoing cough that has no obvious other cause. And it seems to be that the, the basic mechanism, to put it kind of simply, is the, the mechanical disruption of a cough causes ATP release from the um, respiratory epithelium. And then that ATP release activates P2X3 expressing nerve fibers in the trachea and bronchi that then cause a cough. It's like a wicked cycle. Yeah, and so it's a positive feedback loop that um, results in the recurrent coughing. So the idea is, well, maybe if we inhibit the P2X3 receptors, that'll alleviate the chronic cough. So they have a drug, gefapixent, that blocks P2X3-containing subunit, 
receptors uh, containing P2X3. So not only does it block the P2X3 homomeric receptors, it blocks the P2X3, P2X2 heteromeric mm -hmm. unit. So anything that has a P2X3 subunit in it is blocked by this drug. And they gave it to their patients and it worked great. So it alleviated the chronic cough, their cough frequency reducted, you could show a dose response function. The problem was the people stopped taking the drug. And the people stopped taking the drug because it caused such a taste disturbance that they didn't enjoy taking the drug. And they, they just said, I can't tolerate the side effect of this drug. Mm. So several companies have been investigating the possibility of making a P2X3 homomeric specific um, antagonist that's been developed and clinical trials are still coming on line. And this is kind of a little bit out of this line uh, of questions or topics, but is it known, I, I, well, we all know that COVID produces these alterations in test. Are the alterations produced by affecting the P2X receptors or the nerves or the VATs? Do you know? That's a great question, and it's a great question because it isn't exactly clear what's going on in taste. So mm -hmm. the, P, uh, sorry, the COVID effects on the olfactory system are better understood than the COVID effects on taste. Uh -huh. And curiously, there's also COVID effects on trigeminal chemosensitivity, you know, hot pepper sensations. So for taste, there's one paper that's been published saying that the virus can infect the type 2 taste cells. That would be the ones that do sweet, bitter, or umami. And that is thought to account for some of the taste loss. But the taste loss in COVID can be any of the sensory quality, any or all of the sensory quality, so that people report losing sour taste. Well, you wouldn't lose sour taste if you got rid of all the, the type 2 cells because they don't do sour taste. Type 3 cells do sour taste. So the exact uh, mechanism by which COVID can eliminate all of taste is not well understood. It may have to do with a local inflammatory response within the taste bud. Mm -hmm. um, and even less understood is how can COVID get rid of responsiveness of to hot peppers? Because there is no receptor cell. It's just the nerve fiber that itself responds to hot peppers. Mm -hmm. so that's not understood and at I all. And has nothing, it, it probably has nothing to do with the P2X receptors. Is it trigeminal specific for the hot pepper? Like if you put, if you, you know, kind of put some spicy stuff on a braided skin, yeah. put it, you know, on your hand, for example, instead of like in your mouth, or is it trigeminal only, or is it TRGs too that it would be affected I, in that has, way? Has, I haven't seen a report of that in the literature, nor have I, I have seen a report, again, anecdotal reports are what we're going on, right. that people who lose this trigeminal sensitivity um, don't respond to onions, so they don't. Mm -hmm. they Lack factors, yeah. And, yeah. So that at least it's not only oral trigeminal; it would be uh, then ophthalmic trigeminal as well. But I've not seen any reports about cutaneous, right. non-trigeminally intervening. Gotta test people. <laughs> and I haven't seen reports also because capsaicin also affects the gut. Mm -hmm. So you may have noticed if you have a really hot, spicy dinner, you f it's, they say you feel it at both ends. Right. Right. I uh, haven't seen a report about that either. So it could, I mean, and we do know COVID does infect the gut. Mm -hmm. So it could be that it'll also affect that. But I haven't seen any anecdotal report. I should ask them. I know. So there's a, there's a Facebook group for people who have lost taste and smell due to COVID. And so I could put a question out like that. Please do. I, I would be really interested in finding out if there's any cutaneous loss or if it's really 
trigeminal specific versus DRG. The problem is, one problem is that the trigeminal loss and the taste loss both seem to be much more short-lived than the olfactory loss. So there are many people who have had olfactory losses of one in two years due to COVID, and we don't hear that much for taste. I have a general question for you. Given that olfaction and taste seem to be the most, uh, uh, the simpler sensory systems at least, um, present in the most simple organisms. Do you have an idea why the organization is so different between the two? Between olfaction and taste? Yeah. Um, well, they have very different embryology. Uh huh. So the olfactory system uh, is derived from an olfactory plaque code that can generate neurons. So it's a neuronal base system, and the taste system is not. It's just that I find very interesting that there are more resemblances between olfaction and vision at some level, you know, and um, then taste seems to be slightly different from all the other systems, also in terms of the neurotransmitters. Mm -hmm. I don't think that ATP is involved in any of the other systems, at least. Not to the extent. Not that I know. (laughs) <laughs> so t- oh. I always think of taste being an epithelial system like this that's derived from local placodally, well, okay. not placodally, local epithelial cells is more like the auditory system and the lateral line system of fish than it is like the olfactory system in terms of embryology and And, and what about like the mechanosensory, like the Merkel cells and these things that were... Oh, Merkel that cells are difficult. weird in between things, right? Yeah. Yeah, these epithelial chemos- the epithelial sensory systems are kind of odd. Merkel cell is a great example. I mean, what's a Merkel cell? <laughs> <laughs> and carotid body also has some of the same features of taste. So, mm-hmm. I mean, so if you look at vertebrate phylogeny, not, not even getting into invertebrates, which are like a whole different thing. Um, so in, in hagfish and lampreys, which are the either chordates or vertebrates, depending upon what week you're talking to the phylogeny people. Um, They have a distributed chemosensory sense where there's isolated cells in the epithelium called solitary chemosensory cells Mm -hmm. that are hooked up to local nerves, spinal nerves or trademinal nerve, depending upon where they are. And they detect things in the water and transcend the animals behave like they can detect the things in the water. So this is a, I mean, so we may or may not have the analogous system. Um, if we do, it's uh, limited to the respiratory system for us, as we have isolated cells in our respiratory epithelium that are chemoresponsive, that have a lot of elements of the taste transduction pathway that are hooked up to local pain, pain fibers, fibers that are hooked up to uh, like substance, who contain substance P. And that activation of this system triggers local protective reflexes. That is, they activate the innate immune system, so they release peptides into the epithelium that attracts mast cells, for instance. And so that's a distributed chemosensory system that we don't have a good name for. It's called the common chemical sense or Mm -hmm. distributed chemosensory cell or solitary chemosensory cell system. That does not seem to be using ATP as a transmitter. Oh, really? I didn't know that. It looks, mm, good guess would be acetylcholine. Oh, 
Very interesting. And then how about those those kind of similar, those, those random chemosensory type cells in the gut too, that some of them do release ATP yeah. along with glutamate. And right. so there's kind of a double, it's like half taste, half you know, right. regular neurotransmission yeah. for these guys. Yeah, it's, it's all mysterious. Yeah, very. <laughs> But, but yeah, so we, so we had so these are the this is Bohorquez's work. Um, there's also other cells that he, not the ones he described in the gut that are cholinergic mm-hmm. that release acetylcholine. And then another set that are that are <laughs> the, the serotonin the yeah, serotonin right, ones too. Right. So, but I'm not sure they're hooked up to nerves, are they? Maybe, maybe not. It's it's still right. unclear. There's that that one paper by Bologno and Julius's group. I mm-hmm. looked at these um, serotonergic type, like enterochromaffin type cells, um, and it looks like they were doing. Some it may well be, you know, because yeah, a lot just, of a lot nerves wander all over right, the place in the gut. Right. So those cells that release acetylcholine is just to control the muscle contractions. No, they're no? activating nerve fibers, and they're and the acetylcholine is activating local elements in the innate immune system. So dendritic oh. cells and things will respond to that. Hmm. Interesting. So yeah, when you get into taste, you start wondering. Yeah, so, so, all so it's sort of <laughs> like, at what point does it become a taste bud? It's really unclear. Lampreys have structures uh, that seem biochemically similar to taste buds. So they have, they have uh, the, the earliest indication that taste buds used purinergic signaling came from studies of ATPase and ecto-ATPase in, in mm-hmm. taste tissues, which date back to geez, 1960s and 1970s from early histochemical studies. There's a very specific ecto-ATPase in taste buds. I mean, it, it makes sense in retrospect. Okay, ATP is a transmitter. You need something to get rid of the ATP. And the type 1 cells, the glial-like cells in the taste bud, make this ecto-ATPase. It's very similar to astrocytes. Astrocytes in the brain make an ecto-ATPase that's molecularly identical. Mm-hmm. And it's very efficient at chopping up ATP and, and degrading it to ADP very quickly. So we think that's what's limiting the uh, spread of the neurotransmitter within a taste bud. So lampreys have this ecto-ATPase. Fish taste buds also have a serotonergic taste cell type mm-hmm. that may be like the type 3 cells in mammalian taste buds, but not quite because it doesn't go to the surface. It isn't chemoresponsive, but it's there. Lampreys have that. So they have a lot of features of prototypical vertebrate taste buds. But, you know, at what point can you say, well, you look at hagfish, they don't have that. They have something called scriner organs which may be like collections of these uh, solitary chemosensory cells, but they don't have a serotonergic phenotype. They don't have the ecto-ATPase. So maybe this is just a evolutionary sideline that's a different way of so testing. So to, to move back to one kind of still outstanding question that I'm always fascinated by the taste system and is the, you know, you found, right, that the ATP is necessary for sour signaling. If without yes. it, without without yes. P2X channels, yes. you have no sour taste signaling. You might still have trigeminal, obviously, but, right. but you know, sour taste, as far as taste goes, is, is completely wiped out right. if you have no P2X, P2Y, or P2X2 yes. receptors. So therefore, the ATP is necessary. Right. But no one's been able to detect ATP release from type 3 sour cells. Correct. Where is it coming from? Who yeah, have any ideas? Great question. So this is something we talk about, I would say, 
at least once a month in lab meeting, <laughs> right? <laughs> and we still have no idea. You know, all, all I would say is that no one has yet been able to measure ATP release from type 3 cells. That doesn't mean that type 3 cells aren't releasing ATP, but the vesicular, so there is a vesicular transporter for ATP, uh, VNUT, that doesn't occur in type 3 cells. So how does the ATP get out of a type 3 cell? if it's not being pumped into the vesicles to be released. So has anyone, I mean, I don't even know if this is possible, but has anybody measured how much ATP is present within those vesicles? Is that even a thing that could in, be done? Within which vesicles? The type 3 presynaptic <coughs> vesicles. Excuse me. No, no. I don't think, um, I think that would be technically really, really hard. Yeah, because I guess, I mean, enough of, not enough of it is coming out to be measured Can at the release. Side. I will ask a naive question mm. because I am not a taste person, so the audience knows this. <laughs> but if you cannot measure the release and you know that ATP is necessary, can it be that it's just a function of the postsynaptic nerve, that ATP is just necessary in the postsynaptic nerve, but it's not the release, the transmitter that is released? Yes, I mean... Yes, it's possible. It's possible that uh, type 1 cells releasing ATP in response to, say, GABA release from the type 3 cells. So we know type 3 cells release serotonin and GABA. That's been measured. It's mm -hmm. really clear. But how is that activating the nerve fiber? You know, So we know that there's 5-HT3, that is a serotonin receptor, on the sour response of nerve fibers. But if you look at knockout of 5-HT3 function, either by genetics or by drugs, mm -hmm. the system still responds to sour. So it's not obligatory, but it's facilitative. So the response levels are lower in a 5-HT3 knockout or a, a, um, antagonist given to 5-HT3 receptors. You still see sour responses, but they're you know, 30 or 40% lower than they are normally. But the 5-HT3 receptor cannot fully by itself respond in the absence of the ATP receptor activation. Interesting. So, you know, you knock out P2X2, P2X3, the 5-HT3 receptor should still be on those nerve fibers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You would think that the cells who are releasing serotonin might be able to activate those nerve fibers, but they don't. So it may be that those nerve fibers are not sufficiently depolarized that the, 5 the, the release of serotonin could, could then further depolarize them to a, a threshold. So that's one speculation we have is that in the absence of P2X receptors that the nerve fibers are, are less depolarized than normal because there's probably always some ATP wandering around in the tissue that may slightly depolarize the cell and that you only get action potentials when there's either further release of ATP or release of, for instance, serotonin. But how do you test that? that I don't know. That's fascinating. And can you, you mentioned in your lecture today that it's very confusing what we know about salty and you didn't go into much detail, but can you tell us a little bit more about the controversy about the salty processing and what is known? You mentioned yes. low concentrations, high <laughs> concentrations. So in mice, there's two kinds of salt responses you see. One is called amylaride sensitive because it's blocked by the drug amylaride, which is a sodium channel blocker. And that is to low concentrations of salt, which are to mice as well as to people, appetitive. That is, if you put a little salt in the water, they like it. We would like it too. We like a little bit of salt in our seltzer. 
if you look at seltzer bottles in the store, you'll notice many of them have a little low concentration of sodium chloride in. It's the difference between sparkling water and seltzer is the seltzer contains a little sodium chloride. It doesn't taste salty to us, but we show a preference for it. And then there's high concentrations of salt, like seawater level concentration, 3% salt or something that, that we find aversive. It, it, it tends toward bitterness as you increase the salt concentration. But the mechanism for detecting that salt level in mice isn't known. We don't need know what cell type, we don't know what mechanism, there's no receptor function known. It just, the mice don't like it, we don't like it. We don't have the amylaride sensitive sodium system in our taste system. So, but we like low concentrations of salt. So if we don't have the amylaride sensitive sodium system that mice use to like salt, how are we liking salt? We don't know. Maybe it's just a lower level of activation of a generalized sodium response that is appetitive at low levels and aversive at high levels. It's mysterious, so that's why I alluded to this. Well, we don't know what's going on with salt. Mm -hmm. In humans, I know, I know the you know if you give mice like a, the like a diuretic or something that they you know that will make them yes imp like they'll they'll it's go dry. up and they'll they'll because the, the higher salt concentration become more repetitive because they're right. salt deprived, they want it. Is that similar in humans? If, if, you, if you're salt deprived, will you seek out higher concentrations of salt and find it appetitive? I don't know if it's the same in humans as it is in mice. I don't know the answer. I don't know. I, don't know, know. <laughs> I think it's been studied, but I don't Probably. know the I don't answer. Know the answer. <laughs> I mean, I'm missing that literature, but. But um, but yeah, that that is it's a feature though of the salt. Like if you're if, if in in mice at least, if you're salt deprived, the mice will will go ahead and be become appetitive to these higher salt concentrations, which is a really interesting plasticity, right? That that happens state a kind of a state dependent thing. Yeah, but the question is whether that's peripheral or central. Right, right. Uh -huh. There is so when you salt deprived mice, they do insert more amylaride sensitive sodium channels into the membranes so they become more sensitive to salt and presumably and maybe it does it in more cells, I don't know. Mm. I'm not sure I, if this is correct, but uh, the type 1 cells that are, act as astrocytes, don't they have some capability to detect salty or, or I, I'm mistaken about what that? What a good question. Would you like to come to the lab and study <laughs> that? No. <laughs> I have to say I am very naive about this. <laughs> I think I think there's been lots of theories about the type one being, you know, like it, I think the field goes back and forth a lot between, yeah, the type ones are salty or no, they're not, and, and mm -hmm. it keeps going back and forth. I don't know and anything about it, so you can. And you in, term, can in terms of morphology, we see kind of some different. There seems to be two classes of type one cells, so it may be that we're lumping into one classification, different functionalities of cells or it could be one of the type 1 cells does become or is salt sensitive and the others are more astrocyte like we don't mm -hmm. know that because only some of them come up into the taste pore which they would need to have their apical, apical part into the taste pore in order to be in contact mm -hmm. with the salt because the salt won't penetrate the epithelium so some some taste ends will penetrate the epithelium and there's no problem understanding how they might activate cells deeper in the epithelium but salt won't go through the epithelial barriers so you, whatever cell is detecting salt is going to have to have an apical process into the taste pore, and only um, a minority of type 1 cells do that. Most of the type 1 cells are pretty snuggled down around the lower parts of the taste bud. So they almost act as part of the permeability barrier. 
It's fascinating. It's amazing to me that the system that on the surface is simple or simpler than the other sensory <laughs> systems is so complex. <laughs> And that's true of everything. As soon as you dive a little deeper, <laughs> you find all of these questions that are still, you think would be easy to answer, not, not necessarily so. Well, I think we're at the hour, so we're going to give us a thank you. And, and, and is there anything else you want to tell us? Um, no, no, because we don't have another hour. Another so hour. I know, we have another hour. We could go into more conversation. But thank you so much, Tom, for a wonderful uh, meeting today. And um, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Yes, thank yes, you so much. You're most welcome. It was a nice opportunity. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you.